Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today we are joined by Eduardo Diaz Rivera. Eduardo has over 15 years of investment banking experience, mostly focused in emerging markets and structured lending. He had stints with both UBS and Credit Suisse. He has originated, structured, syndicated, and closed more than U.S. $1 billion in financings in Mexico and Central America across multiple industries, including real estate, energy, infrastructure, telecom, and construction. He is the founder of Alta Real Estate Fund. Eduardo, welcome to Global Law and Business. Thank you. Much appreciated. Eduardo, welcome to the podcast. What I'd like for this first question is to let you restate, but also perhaps expand a little bit on the brief bio that Jonathan just provided. Tell us a little bit more about your, your career. Perhaps you can add some, some color to what we just learned. Very interested, as always, in learning how our guests got to where they are today, because we do find that often there are some very interesting twists that take them to where they are. So please feel free, don't be modest, to tell us more about yourself. So I did a BA in economics uh, back in, graduated back in 2005, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, back then, to be honest, I mean, my, what I wanted to learn was about corporate finance, right? And uh, as a surprise, economics wasn't, was, very theoretic. So while completing my VA, I started, you know, studying on my own about, you know, corporate finance, self-taught myself, because while, you know, doing the VA, I didn't have any of those classes. So based on, on those, you know, uh, personal studies that I did, I, I, I took a part-time job at a, a local broker dealer, right? And I started off doing equity research, which it means you know, analyzing financial statements of public companies. This was based in Mexico, right? So I was there until I I graduated. It was like a year and a half or so. And then based on that, you know, self-learning experience and the part-time job, I had, I guess, the good enough credentials to, to, you know, to look out for a job in in an investment banking firm. And uh, that's how I joined UBS, which was back in mid-2005. And... uh, and you know you 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 start there as a trainee and then you you start working up the ladder and learning and uh 
in the end, fortunately, I guess, I, I started learning about credit, which uh, in the end, it's important to understand credit, I believe, because it's part of our day-to-day, right? You know, being a credit card, you know, being understanding how to use it or taking out a mortgage, etc. So I started focusing on credit and I call it structured credit because these type of banks, they're not the big retail commercial banks. So they have a the, the type of credit that they can originate and, and, and lend to, to corporations. It's quite strategic and highly structured in the sense that it's, you know, it involves a lot of legal work, which, um, you know, and, uh, and it has a lot of tax implications and other variables that, uh, it's important to, to structure it correctly. Otherwise, uh, the outcome is not necessarily great. So, um, started working that, uh, growing up the ladder. Then, um, I really enjoyed it because by, actually lending to, 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 to these corporations, you're actually, you know, helping them in a way, right? As long as it's structured correctly. So I, I stayed there. Then I, I had the opportunity to, to change banks and uh, I continued down that process. I started doing some activity in Central America, which is a much smaller market than what uh, the Mexico economy is. It's been what? more than 15 years since then and uh along that path i contemplated doing an mba studying specific finance or credit finance courses but unfortunately and i don't know if i regret it or not i i didn't allocate the necessary time to do so so i continued down my path and um i would say that while understanding the credit business in mexico i had a good understanding i believe of the overall fixed income environment in the world and, and, and the global markets. And uh, so that's how I started showing interest in, in the U.S. cannabis market. And that was back in 2015, 16. I started attending conferences and, you know, trying to meet certain players within the industry, understanding how the industry was evolving and eventually led to, to Alter Real Estate Fund. Eduardo, I'd like to hone in on the specific issue of investment banking. This is a topic that is of interest to me. I think it's of interest to Jonathan as well. And, and, and we, we do have opportunities to, to talk to guests who, who, who have experience with this. But I'd like to ask you specifically about the investment banking world in Latin America. If in any way, does investment banking differ in Latin America from, let's say, the United States or Europe? And just more generally, what, what, what is that experience like? I've always been fascinated by by that world. So I'd, I'd like to hear uh, some some thoughts on, on that culture. I know that in recent days, there's been a, a little bit of, of controversy over some of the reports that are coming out regarding the work hours and the, the work culture at, at some of these large banks. So I'd love to hear your perspectives on that, but specifically, to what extent is there a Latin America flavor to investment banking in, in the region? I would say the main difference is the size of the markets, right? I mean, the U.S. is the, by far the largest economy in the world. It's 20 times the size of Mexico. And, you know, Mexico, and I'll get into the rest of LATAM, but Mexico's economy is around $1 trillion, its GDP. So it's one of the top 15 economies in terms of size. But the main differentiator with the U.S. and, and Europe, it's, I mean, they're much bigger economies and they're developed economies, right? So Emerging markets, I guess, they started to gain traction within the investment banking world in the 90s. 
first with Asia and the race of, you know, the Asian tigers that they call them, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, and those southeastern countries. And then you, you had Eastern Europe, which it's led by Russia, which is mainly, I mean, it's a lot of energy related activity there. And, and then you, you have LATAM and finally Africa, right? So uh, with, with respect to LATAM, uh, the, the biggest economy in LATAM is Brazil. Their main resource is energy. Brazil started gaining a lot of attention back uh, again in the late 90s because they discovered, discovered oil fields and they, they allowed private capital into their state oil company and, and private investment into that sector. So that generated a lot of opportunity for the investment banks, right? While you need to learn how to navigate, you know, being in a developed economy, which means there is a lack of rule of law. There are certain hurdles that you need to abide to. And uh, maybe the do's and not to do's are not as clear as in the US, for example. Right? So the second biggest economy is Mexico. And, and part of its, you know, I guess part of the attractiveness of Mexico is it's, you know, it's a neighbor to the US, which again, it's the, the largest economy in the world by far. So Mexico translated from a closed economy to an open economy back in 94 when we signed NAFTA. What well, was NAFTA? Now there's a, a, a new agreement in place, but in the end, it opened commercial relationships with the US and, and Canada, making it a three country block, which is what I think top three biggest in the world, if not biggest in terms of commercial activity. So that opened up, you know, the borders and then it started started opening up the private sector and then obviously investment banks had appetite for companies that were starting to grow and needed capital of some sort. So I would say, I mean, the activity since the 90s and then when I joined in the mid-2000s until now has been continually increasing. It has, as in every economic cycle or market cycle that has its ups and downs. Uh, since then, I would say we've had several crises. I can highlight the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, the existing COVID crisis. That's, we've been in it for more than a year now. But I would say emerging markets are a key component for, you know, the big investment banks and are uh, part of their source of re revenue generation because these are emerging economies, right? So there are much more opportunities and growth than within a developed economy in the sense, obviously in the US, if you look at the transactional pie for investment banking activity, call it capital market, equity capital markets, debt capital markets, mergers and acquisitions, et cetera, it's a trillion times bigger. But here there's also opportunities. In some countries, there's less competition because you need to understand the local market, its trivialities, its culture, I would say, and there are banks that are not willing to take that risk. So I would say, going back to LATAM in general, there's these two main economies, and then you have the rest, Central America. Let's, I mean, there's, I think, five, seven countries within Central America, very small economies, but as a whole, it's opportunistic, I would say. There's obviously the state-owned companies which are active in the, in the international markets as well. And then you have the rest of South America, which is, you know, the Andean region, which is Chile, Peru, Ecuador, 
which are small economies. There's a lot of um, energy-related activity, a lot of mining there. And then you have uh, the, su- the Southern Cone, which is Uruguay, Paraguay, Argentina. And then um, I would leave, I guess, you know, Venezuela in, in another sort. But uh, I guess, they, they, again, the, the, the main difference is obviously the term that it's these are emerging economies, right? They're not developed markets, nor, nor uh, and therefore they're differentiating size. But also it's leading with this country's process of becoming, hopefully, a developed economy in their own which implies having much more checks and balances, I would say. And that's part of the challenge, but it's also the reward. So Eduardo, now that US, uh, Canada, Mexico, Mexico have signed the USMCA, we have China uh, becoming much more of a bipartisan issue within the US. What kind of opportunities do you see in Mexico and LATAM? And are you kind of generally optimistic, pessimistic, or somewhere in between regarding uh, Mexico's economy and uh, opportunities for, for collaboration across borders? Well, I mean, China has been in play for you know, more than 20 years now. It, it became actually the number one, if I'm not mistaken, trading partner of the US. Now I think Mexico has regained. I don't know if it was number one or number two, or if Mexico is now number one or number two, but China has taken a backseat because you know, of all the transportation costs and the actual internal growth China has seen, right? They've grown six, 7% compounding annual rate for the past 15, 20 years. So China is definitely a major player. There's a lot of interest, one of the top three trading partners with the US, but also in Mexico, there's a lot of Chinese investment coming our way. But in general, I mean, I would say, as I said at the beginning, the Mexican economy is large enough, but Unfortunately, the political environment in Mexico and the rest of the Latin region is pretty challenging, right? There's been a wave, and there's a reason for it. It's not like, you know, out of the blue, one-time events, and it suddenly happens, but there's been a trend, a leftist populist trend in the region, which started with, you know, Venezuela and Hugo Chavez back in 2004, if I'm not mistaken, no, a little bit, 2004 or six, somewhere around there. And now you see how Venezuela is doing. And now you have that tendency, which also, you know, it's in Argentina, it's in Bolivia. Uh, you know, Venezuela, of course, is um, in Nicaragua. And, and now in Mexico, we had a change of government uh, in 2018. Our, the presidential terms are for six years. And, 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 and the existing administration is a populist leftist one, I would say. So it's definitely a populist. Not sure if I would be, if it's leftist or not, but it clearly has these tendencies. And that affects investor sentiment. If you don't have trust in the checks and balances of each country where you're going to deploy capital to, then your decision to invest, I mean, you question it twice. And for Mexico over the past I would say since 2017 to today, that trend had reverted from what had happened. And now the current administration has just damaged completely private investor. And one example is the change in the electricity reform. Both the energy sector, uh, oil and gas and, and, and power were the state controlled and run. And in 2013, there were you know energy reforms put in place, which were uh, you know literally 
structural reforms and game changing for you know bringing in, in uh, foreign capital into those industries and private capital and generating jobs and you know increasing its the overall growth of of the economy and now this administration is reverting that and and and, and literally trying to for example change the constitution which that i mean that is a big issue and it's a big question mark on, on in the mind of investors who say look should i put the money to work in mexico or maybe i can look to other emerging markets because in the end it becomes a relative play right if you look at mexico you can compare it to brazil to turkey to south africa other emerging economies and then you say look where is it where is the the how is the legal climate and the political climate there so my investment is less volatile over the coming years. So I would say I'm pessimistic of what's going on now. Uh, overall, there's a lack of appetite from the private sector and foreign investors to invest in the country, and you see it in the public figures. And and it's due to this, you know, unfortunate trend that's happening. But I guess it's part of the if you look at the long if you go back 100 years and then you look forward 100 years, it's part of what every economy has gone through. And it's just, I guess, part of the process of becoming, hopefully, uh, a mature and developed economy, right? So for now, it's it's pretty pessimistic. And that's why, I guess, you know, Alta Real Estate is 100% focused in, in investing in the U.S. Right? Eduardo, you bring up um, an excellent point, right? Uh, I've, I've been studying... Latin America in a, in a, let's say, organized, structured way, at least since 1997. I remember I took a, a course in university that really provided me with a very good framework through which to analyze what was happening in the region. And it's now been, what, more than 20 years. And it's sad in a way, really, to see some of the you know, as, as we say, you know, tropezando sobre la misma piedra, you know, we're tripping over the same stone over and over. Just yesterday, I was reading in the news how, I think it was on the same day, or, or basically, let's say, the, in the same week, Argentina, they withdrew from the Lima group that was looking at the Venezuela issue. Basically, by, by withdrawing from that group, they're signaling their approval of what's happening in Venezuela under the Maduro uh, regime. At the same time, the, the vice president of the country, who is the former president and widely seen as the most powerful figure in the country, announced that the the country doesn't have the money to, to pay, you know, the, what it owes. And then we wonder, well, well yeah, who, who's going to want to invest in in that kind of climate, right? You have, you have a, basically a government saying, we think that what Venezuela is doing is great. And, and by the way, just in case you, you, um, you have any doubts, we, we don't have any, any money to pay. Shifting uh, our direction a little bit, We'd like to hear your views on what's happening in Mexico regarding cannabis. We know that the country's making important strides in terms of, of legalization of cannabis. So perhaps you could give us an overview and also provide us with your thoughts on the process. Sure. The process started, it started years back, back in 2017, I guess. And I haven't been very involved. Again, our focus has been the U.S. And, and the reason is lack of rule of law and you know checks and balances so and the overall market we we feel as alta that it's the, the opportunities are with within the u.s 
economy and, and within the cannabis industry. But uh, for Mexico, it started off back in the past administration back in 2017, when I think there were a couple of uh, four or five, you know, high net worth individuals which wanted to impose the legalization of cannabis. And one of, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but one of them that it's not necessarily the main reason, for example, in the U.S. or Canada is here we have a, a lot of problem with, uh, you know, with the drug cartels and uh, which relate to insecurity issues, right? And uh, cannabis is one of the products that these guys operate and work on. So one of the reasons of pushing cannabis legalization is, you know, it, it could be a good idea in how to control that and mitigate the 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 risks that. Uh, this cartel activity brings on, which I, I guess everyone's aware of how that's been. But started off in 2017, and, and these four or five or five uh, high net worth individuals, they got injunctions from the government, and they were allowed, they were approved by the Supreme Court in the sense that on a personal basis, they were allowed to consume cannabis or uh, with an X amount to grow it in their own house with obviously an, an X amount, etc. And that brought on a little... Uh, a lot of more of activity and, you know, people wanted to, you know, a lot of lobbying and, and people getting involved in the legalization. And there was a, a law passed in Congress, I believe, which uh, set up some sort of framework of how the medicinal, they wanted to, to only legalize the medicinal cannabis. And um, I think that framework was put in place and there were some, you know, licenses granted, and uh, it was going to be run by the Ministry of Health, right uh, here. And a lot of people started getting involved, but the change in administration was due, and obviously this type of passing a cannabis legalization has political consequences, right? So. What the original framework was, it got stalled, it got lost in, you know, the transition of the government, the new government, as part, as part of its campaign said that they were going to legalize it, but the new government came in place more than two years ago. When the last framework was passed until now, nothing has happened. Again, these, these, these companies that were granted licenses to distribute the CBD, for example, right, which I think was the main product allowed to do so under the past framework, they were operating in a, some sort of gray area, right? Which is not friendly for investors, right? Now, this year, Congress and the Senate both passed the new cannabis reform, which is much more robust in the sense that they want to legalize not only medicinally, but recreationally with certain limits. And I don't know the specifics. And now, to be quite honest, there's, I see it as there's at least two or three years before anything happens, because, all right, the law has been passed, but then how is it going to, you know, mechanically and literally, how is the day-to-day -day of the industry going to work? Who's going to regulate it? What are the legal, you know, frameworks? How is the licensing process going to work? What are the restrictions in terms of growing, a, you know, a cultivation facility? How many dispensaries can you do? And I, may, I don't know the details, but for me to put that framework into into place and make a standard industry where you know what the rules are and the limits are, and, and therefore you can make a decision into how much you will, are willing to invest and what the, you know, the opportunity is. I think it's hard to say, and it's still years 
from actually, you know, start to start gaining traction. It's gained a lot of attention within the cannabis world because it's one of the few countries which is, you know, going federally, both recreationally and medicinally all at once. However, based on how the current administration works, it's going to be a mess. That's my two cents, right? So there's going to be a lot of lack disorganization, right? And again, that that arise that gives opportunity to the players who know how to manage the local climate or you know the local political climate. That's my guess. But for someone who maybe is used to operating under a different framework, it's going to be hard. My view is it's going to take a while before that industry you know is actually set in Mexico. Uh, and then a big part of it is you know you cannot export to the U.S. because in the U.S. you cannot import nor export cannabis because it's fairly illegal. So in terms of the size and the opportunity, right, of the industry itself, I think it's going to take a while. And uh, Canada, I guess it's the size of California, right, or smaller. So, and you can export there, right? And, and, and maybe Mexico could take on the role that Colombia is doing and becoming a manufacturing hub for the Canadians because it's cheaper to grow here. Right. And the energy costs are cheaper, et cetera. But again, I think it's still years from now. Again, it's been passed, but the mechanical and, and the, the actual the operational framework, I think it's it's still got a long way to go. And again, this is my two cents on it, right? I haven't been involved in it in, in, in any way. So uh, but that's my view from a thousand feet up. Eduardo, those are some really great insights from you being on the ground in Mexico. I think it makes great sense. You are at heart a banker. And so even though you're an investment banker, you you think quite a bit in terms of risk. And also, like you, you talked about, you need a certain amount of stability to invest. And that's what I'm when I'm hearing you explain, uh, you know, the pros and cons of the Mexican market. I hear through your banker lens, which makes perfect sense to me. So you had mentioned that you lately in, in Alta financial, you have focused on the U.S. market. You've got investors from Mexico, from Canada, but you're primarily investing into the U.S. market. So can you tell us a little bit more about Alta Financial, kind of about your ethos when you're investing and uh, about some of the opportunities that you're seeing in the market? Sure. So it, it's Alta Real Estate Fund. Uh, Alta Financial is a, it's another marketplace which uh, me and my partners are working on. But uh, so Alta the real estate fund, which was founded back in, uh, well, we we did a pilot fund first back in 2000, late 2017, early 18. And we, we decided that the best way to invest in, a, in the cannabis industry in the US, which I always like to compare it to an emerging economy within a developed economy. In the end, nascent back in 2014 with Colorado and Washington. So it's pretty young. So there's still a lot of, growth and therefore lack of maybe legal framework. And now because of how it's structured in the US, every single state where cannabis is legal, either medicinally or recreationally, there's different laws that you need to abide to and different rules that you need to follow. So one way we decided to invest after, you know, receiving many opportunities, say, come and invest in my growing business and this dispensary, et cetera, was how do we preserve capital if things go wrong? One way was real estate. In the end, as I said, this is an emerging industry within this developed market, which is the U.S. economy. And one way, if things go wrong, if regulations change because, or if legalization takes, you know, another 10 years, 
or if for whatever reason they decide to go back and roll back whatever legalization has been in place in X state, real estate is always there. So we decided that cannabis operators right now have a lack of capital, and that's the main issue they have right now because of the federal uh, being federally legal in the U.S. So one way to help them is by helping them with their real estate uh, capex needs you know, in order to, to to operate. So we decided to to, to put in place some, a, a pilot investment. Uh, we acquired two properties with a a, a partner slash tenant uh, in California, and after a year of seeing that it actually worked out, that the structure made sense and there, there was more opportunities, we decided to, to, I decided to found Alta, what is Alta Real Estate Fund now. Uh, it was put in place back in uh, mid-2019, and the thesis is helping cannabis operators with their real estate needs via either acquiring the real estate for them or a majority of the real estate, and then leasing it to them at market rates, market rates within the cannabis industry, of course, under long-term lease agreements. Or we can do financing against the real estate. And, and the key issue is preserving, again, the thesis is, if things go wrong, how do I, if and I invest their $100, how do I make sure that my $100 are still worth $100, right? If, if under a very downside case scenario. And that's how we come up with all the, uh, the structures that we do. We have more than 11 transactions in our portfolio now. Uh, and then obviously on top of that, you have very attractive returns, which derive from the way the cannabis industry in the US is set up. There's a federal illegality and there's it's legal in some states. So that gives you this arbitrage with which again, it's unfortunate for the operators in a way because there's a lack of capital and a lack of financing on their end, but it's opportunistic for people who are willing to, I guess, take the risk, understand the market and capitalize on, on, on this potential return. So it's real estate driven, 100%. It's US focused. We can invest in any state as long as you know cannabis is medicinally and recreationally legal. And we have certain, you know, restrictions, like, for example, we don't do any agro cultivation. We don't take on development risk. Uh, there are certain states that, you know, are, are not as attractive as others. But so we have a, a very strict thesis. And then uh, on a case by case basis, we, we try and, and see if there's a structure to be created. And if there is, we do the work. And, and I guess that's it. For now, the fund, as I said, is since the, the pilot fund, which we acquired two properties back in 1718, and since its inception in mid 2019, we have 11 transactions in our portfolio uh, with a little bit over $25 million. And we're in the process of raising another 20. And, and the idea is to capitalize on this opportunity because our view is that the industry eventually will open up and, and become like any other industry in the US, which market becomes market, right? Yeah, there's very few arbitrages. Uh, but the size of the market is just incredible. So that's why we're very focused on hopefully continue growing, respecting our, our investment thesis. And again, everything is, you know, capital preservation or under a downside case scenario. Eduardo, it's been a wonderful conversation and it's actually very timely as we're dealing quite a bit with uh, Mexico cannabis related issues. As a matter of fact, tomorrow, Jonathan and I will be, will be participating in an event where we'll be addressing some of these general issues. So 
the timing's been been perfect for us. Before we let you go, I'd like to ask you if you have any recommendations for our listeners, something you've read recently, something you've watched, or even something less conventional, like a place you've visited that you think is worth sharing with others. Sure. I would say there's a very interesting book called Skin in the Game. And uh, it's quite, um, how do you say it? It's, it's not a novel of any sort. And it's a little bit arid. Is that how you say it? But it gives you a quick insight into what does it mean to have skin in the game in everything you do in life. I think it's a good philosophy. So whenever you're going to do something either on the personal level or, or, or the professional level, you, you need to think if you're adding skin into that transaction and therefore adding value or just you're just the middleman, right? It's a very interesting read. It's, it's, uh, it was written by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who's one of the you know, modern day philosophers. Uh, so that's that's a good one and there's also I, i'm into a lot of you know uh, historical novels and there's one the the enigma of spinoza spinoza was a philosopher back in the 1500s which was banned by the jewish community at the time and and also the catholic church so his take on religion especially at that time is, is quite um how do you say revolutionary in a sense And this novel is, is pretty good and it also has, you know, a lot of good points. It's an interesting read, but it also has very good points into, into questioning those types of stuff. So I guess in, in terms of reading, those two are, are pretty interesting. And places to visit, I mean, come down to Mexico. We have fantastic beaches and fantastic food. So it's a great place to travel and uh, people are super friendly. Well, thank you for that recommendation, Eduardo. Jonathan, what about you? I've spent about three hours watching uh, the World Trade Center Utah's China Paradox series. And by the time this episode airs, the fourth and final part of the series will be on YouTube. So it'll be available if you look at World Trade Center Utah on YouTube. And this is great. It's been a really great primer for anybody who doesn't know what's going on in China, but also for those of us who think about China in really serious ways. We have very high and very thorough analysis of, of China from a geopolitical standpoint, from a policy standpoint, and from a practical business standpoint. And so it's been a lot of fun just for me as a, as a professional to engage with this. Uh, you know, we had ambassadors, former legislators uh, at the federal level, national security professionals. So it's been a very interesting series, and I highly recommend it to anyone who wants a digestible way to, to dig into China, but also to really be able to understand what the issues are right now that are facing the U.S. and how we're likely to be dealing with them from a public policy standpoint, but also from an individual business standpoint. Fred, what about you? I'd like to endorse your recommendation. Uh, I haven't been able to follow live as I would have liked to, but I did see the parts of the of the first panel and it, it was great. So, so I have to I have to endorse that. But in terms of, of my own recommendation, I, I read an article the other day, sort of stumbled upon it on Twitter. And uh, the, the title is, is self-explanatory. Indonesia, Spain, Mark, 500 years since circumnavigation by Magellan and Elcano. For those of you who don't know, Elcano was, uh, I believe, Magellan's number two. And uh, because of the fact that he was Spanish, uh, as opposed to Magellan, who was Portuguese, the Spanish uh, have a special place in their heart for him. Also, I think there's also the small detail that Magellan didn't actually finish <laughs> the journey. But anyway, it was an interesting article, sort of highlights the lesser known, perhaps historical links that exist. There's so much nuance to history. 
And, and of course, it's sometimes too much to process. So we sometimes limit ourselves to the really big events, right? And, and sometimes we study some particular events a little bit, a little bit more. But for anyone who has any any interest in Asia, Indonesia, the era of, of conquest and exploration, this this is a good, an enjoyable piece. It was published in the Jakarta Post. We'll be sharing the link with everyone as we as we do. And I believe I, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that the author is the ambassador, the Spanish ambassador to Indonesia, uh, Jose Maria Madres Manso. Take a look. And with that, uh, I'd like to thank our guest once more for joining us and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Global Law and Business. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.